0: seeing how NAMI was doing work at the broadest level in terms of policy and at the most local level in terms of really these grassroots types of conversation, resources and education for families and individual support system. I think that's really what drew us as a family, what drew me personally and professionally to working with and to supporting NAMI's work.
1: We started this podcast because we believe that hope starts with us. Hope starts with us talking about mental health. Hope starts with us making information accessible. Hope starts with us providing resources and practical advice. Hope starts with us sharing our stories. Hope starts with us breaking the stigma. If you or a loved one is struggling with health condition and have been looking for hope, we made this podcast for you. Hope starts with all of us. Hope is a collective. We hope that each episode with each conversation brings you into that collective to know you are not alone. Today I'm joined by Dr. Rajagopal Gopal of the Pollyam Foundation. Dr. Rajagopal Gopal is a clinical psychologist, a professor, and advocate, and he and his family have been supporting NAMI for several years now. Many refer to this time of year as the season of giving. Dr. Roger Gopal, we are so honored to have you here today and to highlight all the ways that you and your family give back to your community. And thank you for joining us. So let's get started right there. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? What first made you passionate about mental health? Uh, Thanks uh, so much for having me, Dan. Um, And yeah, I, I guess there's sort of a
0: personal side to this and there's a professional side to this, as you can imagine, um, so on the personal front, uh, I guess, um, like so many others, our family had this sort of awakening to mental health issues, and it began with a tragedy. So in 2016, um, my cousin died by suicide. He'd been living with um, depression and substance use uh, issues for a very long time. And yeah, after uh, that event, there was sort of this motivation in the aftermath to kind of rally around Uh, as a family, this cause uh, of of mental health uh, and to help others. But I think um, a sort of more subtle thing happened in the aftermath. And and it was something that I think is so important and something that I think was just as important in terms of our involvement with NAMI. Um, So we had this tragedy and it was sort of this seismic impact. And in the aftermath, I think – You know, I slowly started seeing this change in how our extended family was talking about mental illness. And so Mm -hmm. finally, you know, there were these silent struggles that kind of came to the surface and started to be voiced and talked about. uh, People that I uh, didn't even know had been struggling, kind of uh, talking about their own, um, uh, you know, issues and, uh, you know, issues with depression, anxiety, uh, trauma. Um, and it was kind of this shift in conversation, this kind of realization that so many others had been struggling, uh, and living with, uh, symptoms of mental illness and, um, kind of led to this realization, um, when we looked at the initial event, um, you know, really my cousin, um, was not alone and had never been alone. Right. Uh, and, and so from that point, I think a large large part of the journey for us wasn't just about okay as a as a family as an extended family start uh talking uh mental illness but um also how can we learn how to talk about mental illness what kinds of resources are available for us to be able to have these conversations what kind of guidance um and so you know on the personal front i think uh, yes that that tragic event was very galvanizing for us as a family um but also this this realization that that uh, so many others had been uh, struggling and and this desire to find a way as a family um, to talk about these things, right? And then, you know, meanwhile, professionally, I was embarking uh, on this journey towards becoming a clinical psychologist. Um, and my interests sort of led me to working in correctional and forensic settings, so jails, prisons. Forensic hospitals. And the majority of my patients um, in those settings were from usually underserved communities, poor access to medical and mental health care. Really, the majority of them with very complex psychiatric histories and medical histories involving trauma, severe mental illness, brain injury, substance use. And I think in those settings, the stand um, was how really critical and important context is. So, how a system like the criminal justice system, a community, an institution like a state prison can be such an impactful force. And in fact, I would say as or more impactful than than what might be going on in the mind and the brain of, of, of someone who's living with uh, mental illness. And so, so my work as a forensic psychologist and as a correctional uh, psychologist really led me to this kind of broader view Of mental illness and seeing it in the context of systems and institutions. Um, and really in having, um, you know, discussions uh, within our foundation about both our uh, experiences personally as a family and my professional experiences. That's really what led us both to becoming uh, passionate about this topic, but also to NAMI specifically, because there's this idea that, you know, we were looking for an organization who really valued An individual support system, whether that's family, uh, whether that's friend chosen family, we were looking for an organization that was working at multiple levels, right? And, And so, so for me, particularly working within these systems, you know, seeing how NAMI was doing work at the broadest level in terms of policy. And at the most local level in terms of really these grassroots types of uh, uh, conversations, these uh, resources and education for families and and, uh, an individual support system. I think uh, that's really uh, what drew us as a family, what drew me personally and professionally um, uh, to working with and to to supporting uh, NAMI's work.
1: You know, um, thank you so much, doc. And, and I want to thank you for, uh, the investment that you're making in your family foundation is making in us. Um, and we don't take it lightly. Now, I also want to thank you for the work you're doing and have done in forensic psych, psychology, um, and in the correctional settings, uh, having visited the Twin Towers, uh, the Twin Tower jails mm-hmm. in LA, having figured, uh, visited Cook County, uh, three times, Shelby County and some of the other county jails and, uh, seeing um, th- those environments, and I actually went by the forensic psych- psychologist's office at the, the the Twin Towers to see what the what that looked mm-hmm. like in terms of where they worked out of, and for you to give your 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 skills, your 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 uh, knowledge, and to individuals in the in the in the justice system. Thank you. Um, thank you. And we believe at NAMI that uh, folks are living with serious mental illness in terms of their navigation, that they need help, not handcuffs. And many times when they get into the justice system, it's hard to navigate them to the health uh, the, the mental health system. And I put that in quotes because the system is, is, is fragmented at best. But I want to thank you for that work. And also I want to thank you and your, your, your family foundation for your due diligence in looking at who NAMI is from the policy level to the local level and us being grassroots. You're absolutely right. So as you elected to do this uh, support of NAMI financially, um what would you offer to others in terms of supporting as this is 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 that season what would you offer to others in terms of giving Yeah so um this
0: is something we've talked a lot about uh within the foundation I've talked a lot about um in my role as a professor um and I've talked a lot about with colleagues, um, and one of the things uh, I think uh, in terms of giving and, and giving to an organization like Ami uh, specifically that that kind of keeps coming up. Um, and I know this is um, kind of a subset of the larger community, but but one of the things I, I'm very passionate about, one of the things I talk to my students um, about. Uh, is the importance of, uh, of mental health professionals being involved in advocacy work um, in some kind of systems level work? Because I think really too often, mental health professionals see themselves as, as just treating an individual, right? Um, we see someone for therapy, we evaluate someone, and we're so focused on the health and well-being of the individual, which is fantastic. But as I mentioned before, right, there's this larger system, uh, there are these larger structures and institutions at play um, uh, that oftentimes are obstacles to us providing the right kind of care, right? And so I think it, it's really essential for um, any mental health professional to to make uh the kind of were part of their um, you know uh, daily professional life as part of their careers, whether it's giving their time um, uh, giving their voice uh, to kind of the uh, the work that Nami is doing um, so so I guess that that's one thing is is I, I really would like to emphasize the importance of um, psychologists, psychotherapists, psychiatrists, um, anyone who is providing individual care to also, Um, look at an organization like NAMI to see how they can become involved um, at a larger level. Um, And then just, you know, uh, on a personal level, uh, trying to involve family philanthropy, trying to kind of uh, provide education about the type of work organization is doing. Conversations are so important. So I I remember uh, Jessica Edwards uh, was out on the West Coast, and she uh came to my parents home and and we had this wonderful chat uh with my extended family and just the basic and personal questions about mental health um and and that conversation was so impactful to so many people and that was just a conversation right um and and our family you know we're uh you know, we're an Indian American family. We we come from a very sort of close knit extended family. Uh, our parents immigrated here. Mental health was that was um, really discussed. Um, you know, a, a big a big shift in conversation. And so involvement right now in an organization like NAMI, and I guess that's that's also what I wanted to say. You you had asked about what I say in terms of giving to NAMI. To me. Um, the why give to Nami is the easy part, right? For all of the reasons I've mentioned, the work uh, your organization is doing at the local level, nine eight eight is is a great example of something that uh, has been in the works both at the larger, broader policy level and is now trying to build this local infrastructure through through local uh, work. I also think of not just the why, but like the why now, right? Um, so, so to me, the the giving to Nami the why of it just really um, easy, and it's something I'm 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 very passionate about, and I'll talk to anyone about uh, why I'm passionate about Nami's work. But but the why now really is the more kind of uh, poignant question to me, and especially for people who are kind of becoming aware of these issues, uh, may have this kind of desire to contribute in some way. Um, and don't really know uh, how to or whether to, the why now for me is, is really critical. Living in a time um, where we have, as a society, as families, as communities, endured so much from, from COVID to gun violence, uh, police use of force, and what I see in my daily work is that it, these systems are really superheated right now, right? Which makes them valuable yep. in a way that they never were uh, before, right? And, and I'm not just talking about systems yeah. like the criminal justice system. I'm also talking about family systems, right? So so I gave Ooh. the example of my own family, right? Uh, these events, uh, and even more recently, COVID and all of that have, have made the way the system communicates valuable, in a way that it wasn't before. And, and I really passionately believe we have to strike while the iron's hot, both at the, mm-hmm. at the policy level where they you know, um, uh, the policies are much more amenable to change right now than they ever were. Um, and at the local community and family level, conversations are happening that weren't happening before. Uh, in my own family, we're talking about mental illness in a way uh, that we never were before. We're talking about our support for NAMI. We're talking about uh, what work needs to happen and how we can help support and facilitate that work. So for me, for people who... who might be aware of NAMI and, and uh, thinking about lending support, whether it's financial or otherwise, really my, my passion is, is talking about the why now, right? And for all those reasons, I think, you know, uh, yes, NAMI, but also NAMI. Like right now, while things are able to change.
1: Yes, there is this window of opportunity um, and uh, this is a, a moment in time and, and this, this is, is critically important to, uh, to, to actually take advantage and to leverage this moment. Uh, the time is now. And, and, and to your point, why now? Um, and strike while the iron is hot. Um, society is very vested in hearing uh, and, and trying to address mental mental health and mental well-being and stigma. Uh, to that point, I want to ask you about, and thank you very much for the context of Jessica sitting down and, and actually sitting with your family, because I think that this is human. And the more we can make it human and have that interaction and personalize it from the standpoint of talking with each other. It, it really does, uh, uh, help not talking at each other, but talking with Absolutely. each other. Uh, I want to talk about the the fam- Thank you. The family system. And to that point about stigma, I want to, you know, you, 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 mentioned losing your cousin in 2016. I lost my cousin in 1986 and she and I had grown up together and we were like brother mm-hmm. and sister, but she passed in 1986 and my family, and I saw the ripple effect to my aunt and uncle and I lost him to substance abuse as a result of that. Um, And the family pretty much dissolved. But it's 2022. And my father has not talked about mental health, mental illness, until uh, I gave him a copy of our book, You Are Not Mm -hmm. Alone. So what I'm saying is that even my family won't talk about it. What, What have you seen in your family in terms of talking about what what was the conversation like? Uh, early on as you elected to go into psychology. And then I believe you lost your cousin. What is it like now in terms of stigma in the, in, in, in your community?
0: Yeah, I I think that's a great question. And, and, you know, you, you, uh, you spoke to it from, uh, you know, your experience with your family. And, um, you know, to me in, in our family, um, I had this strange sort of uh, realization in in thinking about stigma and then thinking about our family's conversation you know, often we think about stigma as kind of like the presence of something, right? The presence of some negative attitude towards mental illness. Um, but really, in our case, it, it shows up as the absence of something, right? It, it shows up as the absence of of a way to talk about these issues, of um, permission to talk about these issues, uh, right? And 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 so. Combating stigma—that is, like the presence of of something, the explicit presence of something—is one thing. But combating stigma, where people don't even know really how to talk about these issues, is another thing. And 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 that's where really Nami has been uh, so helpful to us too. And you know, I can't count the number of times I've referred, um, you know, friends, uh, family members of clients and patients of mine, even physicians, right, to, to NAMI's website for just some some words, right, some basic resources, information, education. Um, and so I, I would say that's, that's really the first part with our family is it, it started with, um, you know, in the aftermath, um, really an, an awkward and imperfect process of talk about what had happened um when i lost my cousin Uh, to your family dan um you know we're very close-knit we i always say you can move everyone kind of in one level of relationships right so cousins are like brothers uh, and sisters and aunts and uncles are like parents right and so after that loss forced um even around uh, um the funeral services right um, and so, what do we say there? How do we talk about what happened? and you know sometimes there weren't words for it. sometimes um, different people had different narratives and and through those very kind of uh practical things that happen in the aftermath of a tragedy, uh, that's where the process began and then once we had some distance, you know we we could think about things in kind of more uh, or broader terms, right uh, people. Started talking about their own struggles, and, and we started talking about as a foundation what we could do. We had with Jessica, and um, and I think that's really been the journey. And I think the journey for us started uh, so tragically, but imperfectly in terms of uh, conversation, and 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 often I, I think what is needed, what our family needed, uh, guidance on, on how to how to talk and and to use. And, um, you know, to, to come to some kind of ending of what had happened. And to me, that's, that's what breaking the stigma is, that process. And that's what it was for necessarily, um, someone saying, oh, mental illness, or someone saying, um, oh, you know, this person was weak or this person. It, it wasn't like that, right? It, it was just simply a frame of reference. Um, and, and to me, that's been the most powerful. Thing. Um, and, and one of the things I value about our relationship with Nami is just just these resources and 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 providing words, providing guidance, providing structure for for conversations to happen.
1: Thank you very much. And um, as uh, I think about uh, uh, another analogy that Jessica has provided to us in terms of Nami, she's likened it to uh, a, a person walking and they've got their phone and they're holding their phone. Is this uh, uh, area where there was a, a, a manhole cover. It's open and all of a sudden they fall in. Well, then a, um, religious person walks by and he says, can you help me? I'm stuck. And they say, I'll, I'll pray for you. There is a, a doctor that passes by and says, I'll, you know, give you a prescription. The third person that walks by in the man in the, in the hole says, Hey, can you help me? And the guy jumps in. And then, um, the gentleman looks at him and says, well, what are we going to do now? You're in the hole, we're both in the hole. And he says, But I've been here before and I know the way out. Well, that's who Nami is. That's who we are. And Jessica does it and speaks to it much more eloquently than I do. But you're kind of speaking that I want to go back to something, and this is kind of pivoting for just Mm -hmm. a second. You you talked about trauma, um, uh, you talked about depression and anxiety. The last time I went to Cook County, and it's, it's seared in my brain because I went to the women's section first. And interviewed some of the women there, and uh, one of the women asked me if I was going to the men's section. I told her I was, and she said, can you do me a favor? And they taught you that, you know, you can't pre-commit, but, you know, but I did say, well, if I can, I will. What is it? And she said, would you tell my son? I said, hello. So where am I going with that is that we talk about, you know, vicarious trauma we talk uh, about uh, multi-generational and we're talking about stigma, we're talking about giving back. we're talking about you know um, uh, giving Tuesday and and that kind of thing. But I wanted to kind of uh, because you've worked in this area, I wanted to get your 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 insight into what uh, what I saw then and what you may have have seen and, What's the what's the way forward in those kinds of situations? Yeah, and, and, you know, um, that is a fantastic
0: and such a big uh, question. And, and, and I think it's a question that's really at the center of, of mental health care, because, uh, you know, in that setting and even, in, you know, when, when I do outpatient evaluations in, in, in private practice, trauma is just so prevalent and it's so much more prevalent than I would have expected embarking on this, on this career. Right. And, and when you see the multi-generational aspect of it, in fact, I, I uh, evaluated a gentleman this morning and I'll disguise uh, his information for, for confidentiality purposes. But essentially he has been charged with uh, child endangerment for an incident that occurred. And, and, and my job was to evaluate him with the purpose of, of determining eligibility for mental health diversion, for a, for a diversion program. And as we started talking, and, and I don't think this gentleman was was conscious of it, but, but we initially started talking about the incident that had occurred. And then later on in the interview, and I'm talking like an hour and a half later, we start talking about his childhood and his family and the disciplinary style and the parenting. And it was almost like he was repeating word for word the description in the police report of the incident that had occurred, right? Mm And so here is this just, you know, in black and white, like this stark representation of intergenerational trauma and and kind of, you know, the the cliched phrase, uh, hurt people, hurt people people say it for a reason right um and so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so to me um and a large part of the satisfaction i get from from working with nami and from um also working with uh, adolescents and children is is trying to intervene early because so often you know the prison system is the largest mm-hmm. mental health care provider in the country and in working in the prison system, you often feel like, why didn't they just put me in a school? You know, like, like I wish I could have intervened earlier. The signs were missed. They didn't have adequate access. Many people, especially patients I saw at, at, uh, when I was working at the forensic hospital, Napa State Hospital, sought help multiple times before uh, a crime was committed. And were either turned away or couldn't find access couldn't find the medication they needed couldn't afford the medication they needed and so so to me that's the story as well of, of just how do we perpetuate through generations um, these sort of systems of trauma these these uh, systems that set people up I'm not gonna say for failure but but for struggle right and, yeah. and so that's what I saw in the prison system and I think that that's why like to me the the early intervention, Uh, piece. And, and, you know, uh, and I've seen this in your work as well, focusing on children and adolescents, um, focusing on systems and policies and institutions, Mm -hmm. rather than just putting someone like me in a prison and saying, here's this individual, treat them. Um, By the way, in a context itself that perpetuates trauma, right, being uh, a prison. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. It's a big ask of of a psychologist to, to to treat that person in that context, and 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 that's part of the hope I get from seeing this this work that you all are doing, and and talking to my students, and it's it's this hope that there are changes happening, help is on the way, we can intervene earlier, um, things like nine eight eight, things um, uh, you know, uh, like the in our own voice comes to mind and conversations with my students about what, what they want to do in this, this career. Um, I think all of that gives me a lot of hope that, that in the future, it's not just going to be someone like me sitting across from an individual in a prison, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out the way forward. It's going to be us as a society and as families and, and as communities, um, Supporting each other in, in, in
1: finding the way forward, right? So, so, so that's really yeah. where I find, you know, a lot of, a lot of hope. Well, this this has been amazing. You know, it is us and we versus them and they. So how do we how do we craft that us and we? And one of the things that we're doing is constructing this this quilt of different kinds of programs like In, a, in Your Own Voice and Family to Family and uh, uh, Ending the Silence, uh, one of our programs for for schools. And the other thing we've done, because to your point, a lot of young people are coming into this work from the standpoint of their um, they're. they're their level of tolerance and their expectations are very different. So what we've done is we've created a next gen group and we put out a, a call to action for, you know, 10, 10 seats for uh, a year for young people to come in and, and work with us to, to help frame our work. We got 760 applications over 30 days wow. for 10 seats. Wow. Young people care about this and we put them to work and we've had four of them at, at uh, a mental health summit, the first one done at the, at the White House. And uh, I was at an event today where we have uh, some of our young people at that event and we have uh, uh, 76 different organizations represented there that are doing the work in this space. So young people definitely care about this and they are engaged. So I just um, you know want to make sure that we share that Absolutely. with you because NAMI is very interested in, the, in early intervention. Uh, And we're also very interested in having those voices at the table uh, that can influence our work going forward. Um, So, you know, the world can be a difficult place and, and sometimes it can be hard to hold on to hope. That's why each week we dedicate the last couple of minutes of our podcast to a special section called Hold On to Hope. Dr. Raji, can you tell us what helps you hold on to hope? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of uh, started
0: talking about it uh, a little bit, but really, you know, first and foremost, it's, it's the resilience I see every day um, in the people I evaluate uh, and treat. And, and obviously resilience means different things for different people. But it is this uh, overwhelming desire for help and for support and the strength I see uh, every day, even in the face of imperfect systems um, and, and uh, lacking resources. So that's one thing. And secondly, it, you know it, it's the little changes I've seen in my family, the, the conversations I've had with my students, and just you know no. if I were talking to someone with living with mental illness, um, really this idea, as I talked about it at the beginning, um, and I talked about how in the aftermath of, of this tragedy, um, you know, people started to talk about uh, their own struggles, and people really started to open up in a way they hadn't before. And it's that message that you are not alone. And mm-hmm. I know that's that's kind of a phrase uh, that Nami uses, but 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 to me, it's it's a very profound one, um, right? Because I, I experienced that firsthand uh, with my family. And, you know, I see that uh, every day in my work. Um, so it's these connections, these small changes um, uh, that really help me hold the hope. And, and you know, the, I, I, I see people in a context where often a lot of hope has to be held, right? Because uh, people uh, have been in the system since a young age and have been, you know, uh, almost like cycled in and out and uh, similar uh, experiences over time with healthcare providers, with the criminal and criminal justice system. And so, you know, hope regarding mental illness is one thing. Hope regarding change um, for these broader systems can at times all, almost seem overwhelming, right? Uh, but that's exactly why... Um, I engage in in the type of work our foundation does and, and, and the type of work NAMI does because, because that's what allows me to hold the hope in those situations where I'm sitting across from someone, um, in a prison or a jail or a state hospital and, and thinking about what is the way forward here. Um, we're, we're figuring it out, you know, we're, we're figuring it out as a, a, as a community and as, as a society and, uh, and I think, you know, it's only going to get better. So um, so I think there's a lot of hope, a lot of hope out there.
1: You have uh, said it all. And one of the things I wanted to share with you that you probably already know is that we've actually written our first book, You Are Not Alone, the NAMI Guide to Navigating Mental Health. Okay. And it is uh, with over 120 people. Uh, Interviews from individuals um, who um, have lent their 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 experience of navigating mental health uh to this body of work and have agreed to be interviewed. So it's it's a part of us trying to uh spread the the, the uh the information out mm-hmm. in terms of some of the tools and the assets that we have. Uh and the other thing that we've done is we know that everyone has this device at the end <laughs> of their hanging. And I don't know if you know about this, but we've done something here where we say to Siri, I'm feeling depressed.
0: I'm sorry to hear that. Talking to someone might help. If you'd like, I can help you call
1: a friend or family member, or you can find help online at NAMI.org. Wow,
0: I did not know about that.
1: Yes, sir. And I just wanted to thank you and and your family foundation and wanted to share these other assets with you because you know quite a bit about our, our, our body of work and, and all of our, our portfolio. And we're trying to build on it all the time. But what you and your family foundation do in terms of contributing to NAMI makes a world of difference. And, and you probably don't even know the expansiveness of that. And I just want to say thank you. And I also want to thank you on behalf of NAMI for your work. Uh, as as I've mentioned to you, I've been in these jails. I've also gone to several prisons, um, um, starting with Angola, um, um state prison in Louisiana and the work that you've done is incredibly difficult and um uh for you to give your time your energy uh to to the the less fortunate in these situations and those in need of care thank you uh, it, it's it's so inspiring to to hear you speak in terms of hope so uh, are there any closing thoughts you'd like to to leave with anyone who's thinking about donating to nami yeah, um, particularly um, people um,
0: who are from communities of color, people who are from underserved uh, communities. Uh, you know, I just I just want to say there are multiple ways to give, and I really feel that people of color, people from underserved communities, they don't just need to be a part of the conversation right now; they need to be driving the conversation, and. Uh, you know i I would love to see involvement of any kind i know I know financial uh, involvement is is doable for some maybe not so much uh, for others but writing giving your voice you know uh, becoming involved in in these initiatives uh, either at the local level or at the broader uh, uh, you know uh, policy level i think is so so important so um uh, you know, particularly those communities that I've mentioned I would like to, to talk directly to and saying that uh, now is the most important time um, for you to become involved because uh, you are the, the individuals that need to be driving this conversation and, and
1: these changes. Doc, thank you for that. And um, as we wrap up, I also want to say you mentioned 988 earlier and we want to just mention 988 uh, because 988 in and of itself is 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 an asset, if you will. Uh, and it's it's a part of the solution, but it's really looking at that continuum of care and looking at if you're if you're in the, that particular area of, of focus, what this is for, for NAMI is reimagining crisis response. Mm-hmm. And we have a once in a lifetime opportunity to reimagine crisis response. Think about it. Before we only had 911. Now we have 988 uh, as the uh, uh, mental health crisis line and the national suicide prevention line. Easy to remember number. But what does it mean for mental health crisis? It means someone that's answering that call that's a, uh, a, a, a trained crisis counselor, certified crisis counselor. And then if you have to deploy a, a mobile crisis unit, Uh, Hopefully that's a triage team and they respond. And if they cannot deescalate the person that's decompensating, they can actually take them to a crisis stabilization center or a, a similar place. So there's that whole continuum of care that we're building with 988. And that is a work in progress and it is going to take time. But it is a new asset that if we build it right and we build it right with equity, it is going to be so much for so many. So I just want to thank you for mentioning 988 uh, several times as we've had this discussion, because you're right. It is a part of the new way forward. And then we need to go upstream and we need to get to young people long before they, there's any situation where they're downstream. Mm-hmm. And if we can do that and that involves us not looking at um, um, uh, trauma uh, from the standpoint of the symptom, but getting down to the root causes and, and and really examining it. So, you know, thank you so very much. And, you know, as we as we wrap this up, let me just say that this has been Hope Starts With Us, a podcast by NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. If you're looking for mental health resources, you're not alone. To connect with the NAMI helpline and find local resources, visit NAMI.org forward slash help. Text HELPLINE to 62640 or dial 800-950-6264. Or if you are experiencing an immediate suicide, substance use, or mental health crisis, please call or text 988 to speak with a trained support specialist or visit 988lifeline.org. Thank you very much for being with us. We wish you all the best.